But there are also certain times where a person knows you so well. And then you're like, oh, I don't know if I want them to know me that well or like in, in that aspect. And, and so Matt was talking about God dwelling among us. And he, he preached mainly from the book of Exodus. And he went through other passages in the Bible where you can also see this. And he, he went from Exodus, then he went back to Genesis, and then he went all the way to Revelation. And it's interesting, there is one, one passage in Revelation, right where, when the book starts, where John sees uh, Jesus, and Jesus is displayed, uh, uh, and, and they use this very symbolic language, and Jesus is dis displayed among the lampstands, which are supposed to represent the church. So it is Jesus dwelling among the church. And I thought, oh, that, that's nice. No, it, it fits well with the Exodus thing. And, but the thing is, if we have this intimate relationship to God, it means that he really knows us. And like, he really knows us. And then we get to that moment, oh, nice, he really knows us. Oh, he, he really knows us. And then like, what do I do with this? So... The topic of my message is be hot, be cold. And that's a bit of a weird topic, but I'll explain uh, as I go along. And what I would like for us to do today is something a bit different. Uh, I, I would call this, an, I think I would call this like an, an experiment in imagination which would be a really fun title for a sermon if it wasn't completely vague and you'd be like, I have no idea what this is about. But the whole idea of uh, an experiment in imagination is because when we deal with the Bible, when we read the Bible, there are two inevitable gaps that we, we have to think through. The first gap is a cultural gap, meaning that this book or this collection of books wasn't written in a Western society with a Western thinking. So it's important to know how they thought and how they behaved, how they, how they lived their lives as much as we can. The other gap we have is a historical gap. If we are really benevolent with the timing that the last book of the Bible was written, we would have a gap of 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years between us and the text. And I don't know, if, you, if you've ever followed uh, current discussions about any social uh, topic, you will often see a, a difference in opinion or position between a younger generation and an older generation because they have these different ideas, because they were born in different times. Now this, we can already notice this difference between two generations that are, one is older, one is younger, but they even have this overlap because we are living at the same time. And here we have a gap of 2,000 years. So imagine the, the distance in thinking. So it's important to try to as much or as best as we can to place ourselves in that setting. 
So what I would like to do, and this is why it's an, an experiment in imagination, I would like to place us into that setting as much as I possibly can, or as much as we possibly can. So it will require some imagination on our part. And it's an experiment because it might work really well, and then we're like, yeah, that was great. Or it might not work at all, and we're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. So let's try to get back there. So imagine we're this city uh, in ancient Rome. So we're a city placed in the largest and most powerful empire the world has ever seen. But we're not just any city. We are a very wealthy city, but very wealthy, like we're, we're good. And uh, not only, we, we're so wealthy that a couple of decades ago, there was this big earthquake and it completely destroyed the city. But because we live in the empire, the empire would, would often send resources for us to rebuild the city. And when the empire was about to send us resources, we said, oh, we don't need it. We got it. We have, we have the money. We, we have all the resources we need. We don't need your help. You know, we're, we're rich. We're, we're powerful. We don't need anything. That's, that's us. And now th this is a, an important point. Another point that is important is how we became so wealthy. Now there are two, th two things that makes, make us be very wealthy. The first one is that our wealth comes because we're placed in this position. We're located somewhere in Turkey, modern Turkey. And so, but we are placed in a, like a very specific place for commercial route. So everyone who does business have to go like through us. So we're like, good, we're wealthy, and we're like in the best place for commerce and the economics of the time, the whole thing. We're there. And uh, so we're there, and one of our sources of wealth is our farming, but it's our farming of black wool sheep. And we use that wool to make th these beautiful cloths, these beautiful black cloths. And they are so nice, they are so beautiful, so well made. And then you have to imagine like us using those like very beautiful, like this is the best, this is Primark, but <laughs> that's why it's an imagination. <laughs> very beautiful, very nice that people from all over the empire, they like to go and buy our cloth. And even people from outside the empire does this. So we're wealthy because we have this cloth. But we're also, we're also a good medical center. And one of the things that we are known for is a special powder that we make that when you mix with very hot water, it produces a medicine that would be very good for the eyes. And if you imagine during that time, you, you would work outside, there's like a lot of sand, so the chances of you having problem with your eyes was 
quite big, so to have a city where they have medicine for the eye would be ideal and would make us a very nice city to be. So we have the cloth, we have the eye medicine, but there's a problem. The problem is, is that since our city was artificially created because we were made to be placed in this economic route, we don't have any water sources. And that's kind of a big thing if you have a whole city with no water. But a few kilometers up the north, there is this city called Hierapolis that, that have these hot springs, like these natural hot springs, and the water is, is very hot. And people would often use that water for medicinal purposes and for therapy, which you can imagine. Like if you, if you work and you're like, you're, you're sore, you're tired, and just to go in like a really hot, natural pool of water is like really nice, it's, it relaxes, it's good. And even if you go on Google today and you research, you look, Hierapolis, they're still there and you can still go and see. So that's like on my bucket list, like go there. But that's Hierapolis, that's not us. I'm like, so what do we do? Well, we're wealthy. We're really great. We're awesome. So let's build aqueducts like these water pipes, and bring water from Hierapolis to our city. And we'll be great. Then we'll have the hot water, and we'll have the powder to make the medicine. The problem is that by the time the water reaches us, the water is not hot anymore. It's warm. And with the warm water, you can't really use it for medicinal purposes. So the whole purpose of the hot water, which was to bring uh, healing, doesn't bring healing anymore. And so you say, okay, so the water is not hot. For that, maybe we can drink the water. But I say, well, no, that, that's, that, that won't work either because that's warm water, unless you like warm water. But the problem is that the water from Hierapolis is full of calcium. And if you look at the images today of the excavations of those water pipes, you can see that inside the pipe is completely white with the, all the calcium. So if you drink that warm water with calcium, your stomach would just embroil and the natural thing you would wanna do would be to spit it out or to vomit. So there is this problem. And then there is this other city on the other side, some kilometers that way, called Colossae, which Paul wrote a letter to them, the Colossians. And Colossae is nice because they have some mountains with ice on top, and that ice would melt sometimes, and it would create these rivers or these streams where the water was like crystal clear and pure and very cold. Now imagine, you work outside in the sun. Remember that our city is in Turkey. It's hot there. And you're outside the whole day. And when you finish, can you imagine moving from that 
hot condition and you get to like this river where you can see the bottom of the river because the water is so transparent, then you're like, I'm going to drink some of this water. And as soon as you put your hand in the water, the water is like really cold. And then you drink and it's like that, just that refreshing aspect. It's like, it's like, it's almost re-energizes you because of that water. And if you swim in it, then it's, it's even better. But that's Colossae, that's not us. But we're good, we're rich, we're really good, we don't need anything. So what we do, we can build some pipes and get water from Colossae to us. But by the time the water reaches us, the water is not cold anymore. It's warm again. And then if you want to, after a, a whole day of work in the hot sun, then you're like, yeah, I'm going to drink some water and like the water is warm. That's not refreshing at all. And that doesn't re-energizes you at all. So we have this water problem. We have these two sources from different places. One is supposed to bring healing to those who are suffering or hurt. And it doesn't. It's just warm and serves for nothing. And the other, which is supposed to bring this refreshing uh, thing and this re-energizing, uh, it's supposed to have this re-energizing nature, it does and it's still warm. So we have this problem with water. But we're really good. We're awesome. We're very wealthy and we don't need anything. Now this is our city, but us specifically, we're also a church in this city. And we end up receiving this strange letter that arrives the, coming from John, who is in an island just, uh, just east of Ephesus, of Ephesus, which is like an island. So the, the letter came from the island Patmos to Ephesus, and it went through some cities, and it reached us. And this letter is strange. It has like some really weird language where Jesus is portrayed as this heavenly being among the lampstands and they're like stars and the sun. It's, like, it's strange. And then Jesus tells John, what you see, write and send to the seven churches. And then he names the churches. And guess what? Our church, Laodicea, is the last one of the list. And then before he, John begins to, to write what he saw, and he saw some really interesting things, you can read the book later and you'll see, uh, Jesus has specific messages for these churches. And guess what? The last message is for us specifically. And what I would like to do is to read the letter that was sent to us. And let's see what he is telling us. So if you can open your Bibles, turn on your Bibles, or look at the Bible on the screen, we are looking at Revelation chapter 3, and we are going to read verses 14 through 22. So Revelation 3, 14 to 22. So just... Remember who we are. 
And the letter starts. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And then Jesus begins. I know your works. And by this, he means, I, I, I know you. It's not just, oh, yeah, I heard about you. They're like, no, I know you. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve, eye medicine, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I am standing at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I have also, as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you because you are a God that dwells among us in that's comforting and a bit scary at, at times. So please speak to us so that we can understand what you're saying here with this message for, for that church, but uh, that it's also for us today. That we may know you more and may, that we may live according to your will more. That's what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take our letter apart for a second. So Jesus begins describing himself in a strange way. He says, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, this is all language, some from the Old Testament, some from the New Testament, where Jesus is describing himself as the true one. His speech, whatever he says, it's true. And not only what he says is true, his whole lifestyle, his his, the way he lived and he fulfilled God's promises is also true. So he's saying the one that's speaking to you is not anyone. Like, he is the true one. 
and he is the ruler of God's creation. This, the term for the beginning of God's creation is a term that Paul uses a few times, talking about Jesus' authority, or what you would call, if you want to use a technical, technical term, the first cause of all things. So he's like, he's the first cause of all things. He is the authority of all creation. So it's not anyone who's speaking to us. It's like the guy. And he says, I really know you. Because remember, he's the one that dwells among us. He is in the middle of the lampstands. He says, and I know, and the, the interesting thing here is that he says, I know your works. And this term is, is a term that uh, Paul will use sometimes, James. James is actually quite close to this letter in terms of message. He says, I know your words. He's like, I know what you do as believers uh, in your lifestyle. I know who you are. And he says, you are neither cold nor hot. And here he uses a language that they would be very familiar with. Because he's saying, remember the, the hot water? What was the function of the hot water? To provide uh, healing for those who are suffering, for those who are hurt. He says, that's the function of the hot water. And he says, you're not that. He says, you're... You're living among yourselves and in the city, and you are a bit apathetic to people. There are people among you who are suffering and who are hurt, and you don't notice this. He says, you're warm. You're like that warm water when you drink with the calcium. But he also says... Uh, you're not hot and you're not cold. Remember the function of the cold water? Like after a, a hard day of work, you're tired, you're burdened. That water is supposed to refresh you and revitalize you. And he says, there are people among you who are burdened. And they are tired. And they are stressed. And they are just beaten down by life. And you are supposed to bring this refreshment and this, and to re revitalize them, to bring life into them. And you're not doing that either. You're, you're the warm water after it traveled down all the way to the city. And he says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, then our translation is very nice at this moment. It says, I will spit you out of my mouth. And it's not really spit. It's more, if you want, if you want to be literal with the way, the language he's using, he say, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, what this exactly means, I don't know. But if you're being compared to vomit, it's not a good thing. I mean, we can debate details of, oh, in what aspect am I similar to, you know. It's not good, just so you know. 
So Jesus says, your, your life, so you claim to have this faith, but your life, you're completely apathetic to people. You don't notice that some people are hurt, some are suffering, some are tired, some are burdened, and you're just apathetic. You don't notice this in, in, in your midst, as well as in the city you're in. And look at the city you're in. You're like in one of the most important cities in the empire. And this is an interesting thing for us to think about as a church in a city like ours. And then he goes into something that I thought it was very interesting. He says, because you say, so he says, you don't notice this. He said, you don't notice your state. And why don't you notice your state? He says, let me explain. Because you say I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. So here we have a, let's call a methodological problem. Because the Laodiceans and the believers from Laodicea, they are looking at their social status, their economical status, and they, they look at this and they say, oh, we're really good. We're really great. And what do they do? They internalize this social and economical aspect. And they begin to see their relationship with God, their spirituality in, those, in that light. So they say, because I'm rich and I am powerful and I need nothing... I am rich, and I am powerful, and I need nothing. So they use a cultural framework to reshape their spirituality. And then the culture becomes the framework by which they view their relationship to God and especially their relationship to others. And this is something that we as believers today, we have to be very careful. Because we live in a big city. We live in a big culture that proclaims many things, that says we're this and we're this and we're this and we're this. And the danger we have is to get all of these concepts and internalize them and say, oh, I am spiritually this and this and this and this. And then the source of your spirituality is not God's word anymore, but it's the culture itself. It would be a methodological problem similar to what the Laodiceans were doing. And then I, here I find it really, I, I think it's cool, but he... So Jesus is, is like, he's like, oh, so you think you're all of this. Let me show you what you really are. And the Laodiceans, they say, oh, we are this, this, and this, like three things. And God says, okay, I'm going to show that you're this, this, and this, and this, and this. And like, it's more. But it's the opposite. It's not that. Then he says, you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched. And you are pitiable. To have pity on someone? You know, when you look on someone, you say, oh, no. 
poor kid. That's like to have pity. Now imagine God looking to them and they're like, we're great, we're fantastic, we don't need anything. And he says, and he's looking at you, it's like, oh, poor kid. It's like, he's not understanding anything. Then says, you're not rich, you're poor. And he doesn't stop there. He's like, you're poor. You're actually, you're blind. And for you to be a city that's like a medical center, like, oh, yeah, we make the medicine. We bring healing to people's eyes. And he's like, yeah, you bring healing to people's eyes, but you are blind. It's like a blind person wanting to heal another blind person. He's like, you, you, you don't see uh, your true reality. And not only that, he says, you're blind and naked. And in, in Jewish thinking, the, the naked thing is like you're in a shameful state. You claim to have, oh, we have this great clothes and this great cloth everyone buys from us. Look at how we are. We are so nice and we look so presentable and great. And it's like, no, you're not presentable. You're actually very shameful. So it's like a very harsh word from Jesus to them. But he doesn't stop at, the, at this harshness because the message seems very harsh. They're blind, they're naked. He's like, oh yes, you have all of this, but you can't see that the person next to you is suffering. And you can't see that the other one, he is beaten down by life. And you, you're so full of yourself that you can't notice these things and express your faith through works or through the, these deeds that John is saying. But Jesus gives a solution to them. He doesn't stop there. He says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. So he, he tells them, do you want to be truly rich? To truly be rich, you need to get from me this richness. And this richness for me is like a gold that is refined by fire. And the gold refined by fire, the idea is that if you want the purest gold, the gold has to go through this process where it, it goes into like this very hot state to be able to remove all the impurities and become a truly pure gold, which is like the richest gold you can have. So what Jesus is saying, like, do you want to be truly rich? You need to live a life of faith that, it, that is constantly purifying and that it, it's not based on the current culture. It's based on him. And he says this refined by fire aspect, it means that it's a process in your life that you're going to go through many trials and many difficult things, and that whole process is going to purify you along the way. It's the same thing that James says in chapter 1 in his letter. He says, count it as joy when you go through trials, because that will test your faith and will give you endurance, and this endurance will make you complete and whole. So it's the same language uh, that John is using. And they not only need to buy this 
gold from him, but also white garments, so that they may clothe themselves, and the shame of their nakedness may not be seen. And white garments, white clothes, in the book of Revelation, is typically a sign for the purity of the saints, where they, dis where they are displayed throughout the book as this people who went through all the, this stuff, and they're like, yes, you are my people, and in Revelation, they are not dressing themselves with the white garments. It's Jesus that puts the white garments on them. And he's like, yes, you are, you did good. You lived out your life in this way. You, your faith was authentic and it produced all these works. And I see you have lived and purified your life in this whole process. And he continues and says, and the other thing you need to buy is salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And this is a really interesting thing, is that whole, the blind wanting to cure the blind. It's like, you, you don't realize how people are hurt and they are burdened, they are beaten down. If you live a true life of spirituality based on him, your spiritual eyes will be more awake to notice these things, to notice that a person in our midst is hurt, is suffering, is beaten down. And then you have not only the, the capacity to realize this reality, but also to do something about it. And so you hear this message and you're like, oh, man, this is like... This is not like a pleasant message, like, I'm among you, hugs. It's like, ugh. It's like, yeah, I really know you, and here are some, like, cold truths that you need to hear. But there is, in, in verse 19, a really beautiful moment in all of this not-so-nice message that we receive. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. The reason why he gives us these types of texts is because he loves us. So at the, at the foundation of his whole argument is not, oh, you are really crappy. Just stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this because you are crappy. It's not because you are crappy. It's like, because I love you, stop doing this, stop doing this. It's not good for you to do this. I remember this week at home, uh, Gabriel was playing in, in, the, in the living room. And, and they have these boxes to put toys in. And so he dumped all the toys in his room which made his room a mess. And then he, he put the boxes in the living room and he stacked them, like one on top of the other, like these boxes from Ikea. And then he, he went up the, on the couch and he was like, I'm gonna jump on top of the boxes. <laughs> and I was on the computer at the time, I was like, he's going to face plant. And he, he's just not gonna be good. So I ran to him like, no, stop it. And then I take him out of the couch, put him down, and re I remove the boxes. In his perspective, I was ruining his game. 
He's like, oh, I was going to be awesome. I was going to jump. And like from the couch to the box, and it's going to be great. Not realizing the danger in that whole setting. But me as a father, I had a bigger perspective, like this is not going to be good for you. So I'm going to remove these boxes and I'm going to take you down from that couch. And that's what, that's what Jesus does here. Sometimes we live our, our spiritual life thinking that everything is great, that everything is nice. We're like, yeah, this is fantastic. We are so good, so great. Look how God is blessing us. Our church is growing very much. But with the whole process of growing and expanding, we, we always have to be careful that our eyes are not going to be blurred, that we are not going to notice the people around us and what's really going on in their lives. And Jesus gives them this message because they're really in a bad shape. And for us, as like a, like a warning, like, just look, be careful. Perhaps some of us may already be doing this, may already be in this state. Some of us may not be in this state, but it's good for us to remember, like, okay, let's just keep in mind. Let, let's be aware of this. And the whole reason for this is because he loves us. And he says, those whom I love, I reprove. So I do, I say, no, don't do this. Look what you're doing. And so it's like, there's like this negative aspect. And I discipline, I, I am teaching you to live. So I'm not only going to say, don't do this, but I'm going to say, do this, because this will be better for you. You know, it's like when we're as parents uh, and you have like a little kid and he, the kid is like, why can I do this? Because no, because I said so. And sometimes with little kids, they, they, they don't understand if like, let me explain to you. Look, you see the boxes? Well, if you, that box is like a little curve this way and the floor is, is not really, thing. Uh, they're like, I don't care, I wanna jump what Jesus is doing here, because we're a bit more grown up, he says, look, don't do this. But what you should do is this. Pay attention. Look at the people around you. See who's suffering. See who's hurt. See who is burdened and beaten down by life. And be hot. Be cold. Provide the healing. Provide the refreshing nature of the cold water. But don't be warm. So he says, I I, those whom I love, I, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous. And zealous, we often hear the word zealous as like something bad, like, oh, be zealous. I have to follow the rules. But it's not about... Well, it is about following the rules also. But be zealous in the sense of live out your spirituality in a true sense. Don't just say you believe things and you are completely apathetic to the people. Be, be zealous and, and live out this zealousness 
the zealousness of the faith is to have a faith that is hot, that, that tries to reach people, perhaps in a physical sense, perhaps in a mental sense, perhaps in a spiritual sense. Some people might be suffering physically because of many uh, ailments in their body. Some people might be suffering mentally, some which is something that in our city is actually quite high because of the high degree of loneliness that people describe our city to have. And a lot of people are suffering spiritually because they're completely far away from God. And we need to have eyes to be able to see this. So let's have a faith that is hot. And let's also have a faith that is cold, that brings life to people, that brings refreshment to people. And, and, and this, is, this is interesting because I lived my entire life going to church. Because my father is a pastor, so I grew up in church, like church kid, all my life. And because of this, I've, I've been to church all my life. I visited thousands of churches. And one of the things I would hear sometimes in churches, and I'm glad I never heard this here, uh, from the worship leader, uh, that they would say, okay, we're here to worship God today, and let's have a great time enjoying him and praising him. So if you have any problems, any things that, are, that is burdening your heart, that it's weighing you down, leave everything outside the door and let's just come and worship him. And that's not what you see in the Psalms, for example. Most of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. What we should say is, oh, you have all those problems, all those burdens, we are going to be here, we're going to worship God in all his might and all his great, so bring everything in. And in this whole tension of like, I'm, I'm struggling and I'm suffering and I'm worshiping God, let's see what he does in our midst. Because if we do the other one, we might have a great time worshiping God, but as soon as the meeting is over, you're going to look to the door and be like, oh, I don't want to go out that door. Because as soon as I go out the door all those burdens and all those sufferings and all those things are just going to like come weighing down on me at once. And what our role as a church should be is be hot, be cold, bring everything in. Let's see what we can do together. We're a people together and God is, dwells among us and he's in our midst. And then he says in verse 20, Perhaps the verse that I've heard people misunderstand the most in the Bible. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He says, Look, you're completely apathetic. You're, you're like warm water. But I'm here and I'm giving you this message. Pay attention. Listen. Be zealous. Repent. If you do this, I will come in, I will be here, and we can live out this spirituality where our faith is enacted in our works as we be hot Christians and cold Christians in providing this healing and this refreshment to each other and to those who may eventually come in. 
And then we have a promise in verse 21. So remember the promise if you're lukewarm? Uh, if you're lukewarm, I I'm going to vomit you out of your mouth. And I said, eh, that's, uh, I don't know what that really means, but it's not nice. He said, but if you're hot and cold in this way, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on the throne. Can you imagine the message? Like, you have two options. You can be vomit, which nice, or you can sit with him on his throne in the same way he sat with father on the throne. That's not even something we should, uh, let me see the pros and cons. <laughs> it should be like no context, like, yeah. And then the last thing I want to say, the danger that we may have with a text like this is to read and to fully understand all the cultural and the historical aspect and all these promises and look at the land and say, oh, Laodiceans. Look at them. Now they have to make a choice. I mean, the choice is pretty obvious, but they have to make this choice. And then like all of the letters, if you read, they all end in the same way. Verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. That is, that message is for the Laodiceans, but at the same time, it's for the churches. He's saying whatever happened in, in Ephesus, with the letter to Ephesus, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They have their own problem, but that might happen to us. Look at what happened to Smyrna. Look what the Spirit says to the churches to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. He says all of those things happen to them, but it may also happen to us. But he gives us these letters and he says, he who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Why don't we close our eyes and bow our heads? And let's take some time to think about the wonderful thing that it is for God to be a, a God that dwells among us, which is an incredible thing. It's a God that, in the language of the Bible, is great enough to hold the stars in, his, in the palm of his hands and know them by name, but he's also small enough to abide in our hearts and listen to our prayers. And he's a God that did this in Exodus, in the tent. He did this with Jesus, and he does this with the spirit that now lives among us. So think about the reality of this God and what this means for us in a practical sense of what it means to be a believer, a church 
of believers in a city that looks oftentimes so lost that we may have a faith that is not, that doesn't live it out in practical ways. That it's not merely theoretical, but that it pays attention to people <clears throat> because he loves us and he wants us to have a good perception of who we are and who the people around us, who they are and how they are and what we can do to live out our faith as a community among the believers as well as a faith as a community to the city we're in. <clears throat>